My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Robert Hannig. Robert is a pioneer in the fields of systems thinking and systems sensing. He's been doing this work for decades, helping organizations, collectives, groups of people more deeply understand the self-evident interconnectedness of everything that they do. He says at one point in our conversation, your system isn't broken. If it feels like your system is dysfunctional, you need to start paying closer attention because your system, the system you live in, the organization, the community, uh, maybe we could even scale us up to the civilization or the nation, perhaps even the globe, but the man-made, human-made system that you live in is perfectly designed to get exactly the results that it's getting. The system you live in is perfectly designed to get exactly the results that it's getting. This, this reorientation towards a recognition that we are both participants in and recipients of and creators of our reality because we live in interconnected systems is a completely new and ancient way of understanding how the universe works and how groups of people work. Robert opens our conversation with a poem from Thich Nhat Hanh on interbeing that speaks to the effect of that. And we decided to play with poetry today, as I sometimes do in other episodes, as, you, as you've no doubt have heard, if you're a listener, regular listener. As he told me that he does that for his workshops. And I said, well, let's think of this like a workshop on systems change. So we play with that. Now, that said, we're only in many ways scratching the surface, but it is possible to scratch, just simply scratch the surface on these ideas and walk away with, with a depth of understanding about your work or your family or, or your business or whatever it is that you might want to analyze or understand more deeply. And my biggest takeaway here is that the way we understand ourselves and the way we choose to show up for ourselves and for each other has an unbelievable impact on other people's experience. So if you're at all curious about, or if you have an instinct that things are connected more and you want to begin to find a way to understand how to make sense of that intuition, that things are connected more, that, that these are not isolated incidents that we see playing out on uh, in the news or on the global stage or in your, in your office workplace, that these things are connected. Well, Robert is the kind of person you want to be learning from. 
He has devoted his life in many different disciplines and many different contexts to understanding these ideas and, and helping them live and breathe inside of people and organizations. So I think that's enough for now. If you want to learn more about Robert's work, you can find him at academyforchange.org. It's academyforchange.org. Robert is a founding member of the Academy for Systems Change and uh, also a founding member of the Society for Organizational Learning, which is soloonline.org. So you could go to either of those places to learn more about the amazing work that he and his contemporaries and colleagues are doing in the world. But I think now it's time for us to get settled in. (sighs) And hear what Robert has for us. Hi, Robert. Welcome. Hello. Good afternoon. Good to see you. So we were sharing before we started recording and you mentioned something that you often have not always used to open your teaching and facilitation and workshops. And I thought we should just start with that right now. So maybe you could share that. Sure. Yeah. This is uh, very often when there's a a kind of systems thinking uh, or systems change is a big part of either the program or the intervention or the uh, meetings that we're having. Um, I often start out with this particular piece of writing by uh, uh, a, a Buddhist master named Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. And, you know, part of what often comes up around um, systems thinking is the notion and actually the self-evident kind of um, experience that everything is connected. And Thich Nhat Hanh just had a remarkably poetic way of not only expressing it, but of actually underscoring the self-evident nature of it. So let me just read it to you. It's called interbeing. If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in the sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there would be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter are. Interbeing is a word that is not in the dictionary yet, but if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, interbe. Without a cloud, we cannot have paper. The paper and the cloud inter are. If we look into the sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. We cannot grow without sunshine. So we know the sunshine is also in the sheet of paper. The paper and the sunshine inter are. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill to be transformed into paper. And we can see the wheat. We know that the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. And therefore, the wheat that became his bread is also in this sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look in this way, we see that without all of these things, the sheet of paper cannot exist. Looking even more deeply, we can say wheat. We can see we are in it too. This is not difficult to see because when we look at a sheet of paper, the sheet of paper is part of our perception. Your mind is in here and mine is also. We can say that everything is in here with the sheet of paper. You cannot point out one thing that is not in here. Time, space, the earth, the rain, the minerals and the soil, the sunshine, the cloud, the river, the heat. Everything coexists with the sheet of paper. That is why I think the word interview should be in the dictionary. 
To be is to interbe. You cannot just be by yourself alone. You have to interbe with every other thing. The sheet of paper is because everything else is. Mm. Oh my God. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's really... Mm. Yeah, it sets a very nice tone because, you know, a part of um, part of one of the challenges when people get into systems thinking, are where are the boundaries? Yeah. You know, what, yeah. Is it a part of the system? Is it the whole system? And of course, you know, on one level, we have to be able to determine a boundary as a working premise. But mm. we have to be open to the fact that it's actually open. Mm. Mm. You know, mm. The boundaries are at least fuzzy, if not open. And so we have to be open to other kinds of influences. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it requires a different way of being, not just thinking, to be able to work with it. Mm. There's so much I want to ask you, but maybe just that last statement you said that perhaps you could unpack a bit more what you mean when you say the way of being and not just thinking. Yeah, so um, uh, very often it's, you know, um, a lot of people I've known who've, who've really been very adept at systems thinking were also artists. Mm. And they've understood that, you know, you have to kind of get inside the energy a bit. You have to sense things a bit. You have to feel the rhythm a bit. Uh, and then you can begin to see it. So there was a an interesting story. So there was a... Um, actually, well-known character named uh, Bob Galvin. Bob Galvin Sr. was the uh, um, founder. Actually, his father founded Motorola, but he was there since the 1950s, and he was the chief executive chairman of the board. And as we know, Motorola, as many people know, Motorola was one of the most technical Six Sigma-type companies in the mm-hmm. world. And so I interviewed him once. I interviewed a number of different people, but I interviewed Bob Galvin Sr., who was... It was a joy. It was remarkable. He was probably in his early 80s. And I said, how do you, how do you manage a behemoth like Motorola? <laughs> how do you know where to put your focus? And he said, well, let me tell you a story. He said, I like the Chicago Symphony. And uh, I, I'm a member of the Chicago Symphony. And I like to go to all of their concerts when I can. And uh, well, I like to get there early and I like to hear the orchestra warming up. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I sit there, close my eyes and let the music flow over me. And I can begin to feel into how they're going to be that night. You know, mm-hmm. I begin to be, he said, this is going to sound strange. I do that when I come to work. <laughs> <laughs> but you understand uh, what I'm talking about now. And yeah. So many of these people is like, you know, Technically, what you can measure, measure, but don't get confused by there's certain aspects that you can't figure out completely. You literally have to sense into a large system. Yeah. Uh, and then you know generally where something is moving and where you may focus kind of your energy or your intervention. Mm. Um, now, when systems get smaller and smaller or the parts, it's, it may be a little bit different. But, you know, with, with large entities and organizations and institutions, that's often the case, uh, yeah. you know, about, you know, leadership and change. I'm struck by, that's a beautiful story and, and answers the question maybe perhaps better than any, any more abstract telling could have, but I, I'm struck by how 
exceptional, and by exceptional, I mean kind of rare, that approach to being is. Like I can imagine, uh, I can just imagine people going, oh, why do I do that? <laughs> you know, like there's this very, it's very counterculture almost in a, in a world where, where we are, where the mind and thinking as opposed to sensing, which includes thinking, uh, can include thinking is, is not always prioritized. And I just wonder, yeah, I want to love to hear you riff on that. Yeah, well, you know, I guess a couple of things come to mind uh, for me about that. And again, this is, you know, everybody has their own particular set of experiences. Um, I think that a lot of of leaders, and we're kind of going off into a, a, a connected territory, you know, who are kind of responsible for large systems, don't always advertise that part of how they do things. Mm. You know, sometimes they call it gut feel. Mm. You know, sometimes, you know, um, you know, again, Galvin told me all of the all of the market research they did on pagers was don't go into the pager business because, you know, you maybe have a few doctors and a couple of lawyers. You're not going to sell a lot of pagers. He said, you know what? I don't think so. They went into the pager business mm. and, you know, they, they employed tens of thousands of people around the world. <laughs> Uh, you know, so he's not anti-market research. He's just saying it's only one piece. I mean, mm-hmm. people from Shell, from Harley Davidson, from, uh, you know, and many of them, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, for a variety of reasons, they don't necessarily, uh, you know, um, advertise that dimension mm-hmm. of their capability. Mm-hmm. But many of the most successful really can do that too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes... Sometimes they don't even distinguish it. They just know. They, mm. they get a feeling. Now, I don't think one should be completely led by gut feel, but gut feel is, is a good indicator of where should I put my attention? Mm. What may be going on here? Mm. And it's also, mm. you know, it can be fairly uh, uh, quick to be able to do that. And, you know, sometimes you just don't have the time to do a complete analysis. Yeah. When you do, fine. But a complete analysis doesn't always you know, uh, encompass all of the factors, especially the emerging factors. In well, it sort of connects system. to your, to the, your whole, the whole insight of interbeing in Thich Nhat Hanh's yeah. reading, right? Like a com- complete is a choice. When have yeah. we completely ana- analyzed the whole system? Yeah. And at some point you have to take in the whole universe, which is of course just an exponential impossibility. Mm-hmm. So you sort of make a choice about what's, what, what are we going to look at and what aren't we? So I'm, yeah. I'm struck by like, this what what we're calling gut or intuition or sensing becomes a way to kind of filter where you might attend to or not. Yeah, yeah we're kind of going off in an interesting direction, but I mean, I think there's something called I think there's cognitive. I, I'm for I'm for it all. I think yeah, be, it's, you know, yeah, if you can get it clear and distinct, get it clear and distinct. Try to do that when you fall in love with something. I mean, so there's certain <laughs> things that just you know doesn't yeah. quite lend itself yeah. to. But I think intuition, gut feel, and that kind of thing is, in a way, this is not quite the right right label for it, perhaps. But it's all body knowing. It's all it's it's mm. it's, it's knowing with mm. every every capability that mm. you have. Mm. Uh, and mm. uh, you know, I I once spoke to somebody else who was you know a technical vice president at a very large company. And uh, we were talking about the sense of gut feel. And he said, you know, you can learn, you know, you, you should should be able to distinguish your gut feel and then test it. And then you get better and better and better. 
at knowing when it's, you know, mm. something a little bit deeper than simply just an opinion. Mm. Um, mm. But I do think, you know, for systems, and I do think more people actually know this or use this uh, than, you know, they may actually either admit to it or be completely conscious of. Yeah. And the more conscious of you are, the more useful it is and the more you can actually test it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and sometimes you just don't have the time. It's like things are moving. Okay, what now? Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, if you have the time, no, great, do whatever you want to do. But ultimately, it still comes down to, yeah, you know, a choice. Yeah. So yeah, I think systems. There's a dimension of systems that's really about that. Beautiful and people that really have successfully over long periods of time worked in systems almost invariably, at least in my experience, will. Um, We'll cite that as one of the one of the capabilities. Yeah, and it's remarkable that. I mean, it almost sounds uh, magical or mystical, but it really is just this human capacity to sense our environment and sense the way things relate. Right? You can imagine. I can imagine. At least I'll speak for myself. Our ancestors navigating complex natural environments filled with creatures of all types and shapes and sizes and elements and everything sort of breathing and acting as one it's like you, if you don't have some awareness of beyond your cognitive then you're going to miss you might not last very long. yeah yes a kind, a kind of a corollary or a little bit of a, of a uh, maybe a more practical dimension of this is the difference between explicit learning and tacit learning hmm. you know and tacit learning you can't completely describe how you know and it's even more how you know how you can do something you know, the uh, example that's useful, a very simple example is you can read every book ever written on riding a bike. You can answer every question put to you about riding a bike. Then you get on a bike. <laughs> Whoa, it doesn't quite happen. It's not completely predictable. You know, that's tacit. You have to you have to use something mm. else. I remember learning to snowboard. Oh my God, I read every book and I was falling on the mountain. I mean, you know, it just, you know, <laughs> at a certain point, you know, you started to get into it and you could feel it. Um, and so I think that it, it, it's, it's a relevant example mm. of, you know, um, what is that saying? You know, how many years of experience, you know, 50 years experience, or did you have one year of experience 50 times? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Galvin, you know, lots of leaders I've talked to, they always, they often, if someone, they hire someone for an important position or complex level of high level of complexity. They ask, where have you failed before? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, not so much to, of course, for embarrassment, but what did you learn? How do you, yeah. you know, can you learn from everything? Yeah. Um, you know, because, um, you know, uh, maybe one last thing, which is a, uh, Often it comes up in systems thinking as well, which is, you know, there are a number of different tools in systems thinking. There's causal loop diagramming, you know, there's the using the, uh, an iceberg analysis, mm. uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, um, uh, well, all kinds of different mapping techniques. Then there's interpersonal, uh, you know, mapping and psychopolitical dynamics. I mean, there's, there's a lot, you know, that you can actually begin to, to, to see the system. And the thing is, is that very often we, we, we can tend to focus more on the tool than the tool user. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
You know, mm. you want to learn? Yeah, yeah. Beethoven, here's his piano. Let me know how you're doing. <laughs> Picasso, I'll give you his brushes. Here they are. <laughs> These are the tools he used. Uh, I could, <laughs> could make some, some good money on the aftermarket for those, but I wouldn't really be a, bit, a very good painter or pianist, right? Yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. so use a tool. Use it well. Don't use it well. And that all right. of a sudden it starts to become, you know, like uh, rather than, you know, going out and, and with this acquisitive kind of approach that I think is often around in the early stages. You know, it's sort of like collecting every tool you can, you know, this giant toolbox. When do you yeah. use it? How do you use it? Yeah. Um, wow. I'm struck know. by that that failure question there's something for me, at least I'm experiencing as a slightly new facet of that prism of the power of failure as, as kind of a, another word for learning. But like I sense in that question, like tell me where you failed is, is a, that, that speaks to the 50 years experience versus one year of experience 50 times, right? You, you simply don't know how accurate your filter is until you apply it against reality and see what happens? And if you fail, then then you just get this really great insight that your filter isn't accurate enough yet. Yes. And maybe you can never be a hundred percent accurate because then you've got to take in the whole universe again, right? The the Tiknat Han insight. But the the higher the accuracy, the more powerful that gut instinct becomes as a tool to navigate complexity. Yeah. No, it, 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 yes, and it, it also um, uh, it, it helps to displace an overactive ego it helps mm. to create some new humility mm. Mm. you know very often you know um people can it, it, you know being successful there's so much pressure to be successful that uh there's very little learning and you know they you know a group can continue to pursue something that there's clear evidence that it's not working mm. uh but mm. you know because it's you know it's 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 may not have learned yet to the dis- use the disconfirming feedback as a way to quickly learn, you know, mm. literally the best learners experiment, succeed and fail, and then uh, adjust. I mean, mm. you know, this is a, Amy's work, Amy Edmondson's work on mm. psychological safety. It's exactly that. The most creative companies, the most creative mm. groups mm. are able to do it. Another way, one last way of saying it is, um, you know, in the learning process, and this is especially true in, in a systems context, the three stages are imitation. Wait, no, don't find the tool. The second stage is constraint, which is it stops working. <laughs> because, <laughs> right? Now, you plop know, yeah, the, the Beethoven sheet music in front of me, you go, oh, well, I can make sounds on this piano, but I can't actually make those sounds. So there comes constraint. Now, yeah. you can go two ways. You go back to, give me another tool. Get me another yeah. piano. Versus mm-hmm. now you need to account for the constraint. And mm-hmm. that produces mastery. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it requires me. Mm-hmm. This situation has never occurred before. You know, it, it's not, it, it's, a, you know, Heifetz will call that adaptive versus technical. Yeah. This is not a technical problem. Yeah. There's human beings involved. There are, you know, unanticipated dimensions. Uh, you have to be fully present to now begin to take it all over. Mm-hmm. Can we stop for one sec? Sure, yeah. Right. Well, your question. How, you know, a more technical way is how have you dealt with constraints? Yeah. Where have you dealt with constraint? Yeah. What'd you learn? Mm. 
Mm. Yeah. I love this insight of, uh, and it might not have caught in the recording because we just had a little little hiccup, but you said that constraint can sort of be encountered as um, as a frustration or a problem or an opening. Yes. That that constraint is actually the, the very place where we can discover new possibility. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And underlying, underlying that is curiosity. Like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> uh, and and part of a system is is the is the cultural if you know there are are, are value uh, what's the distinction? Uh uh espouse values and values in use. Mm. You know, mm. the espoused value is it's all it's fine to make a mistake. Values and uses, you better not make a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And so what you get with that, you better not make a mistake, is you get negligence. You get people not trying anything. You get them hiding stuff. I mean, this is uh, Deming. You know, Deming, uh, you know, the father of total quality would say, you know, these kinds of cultures, people hide their mistakes. They hide the uh, uh, variations. And we can't improve the system unless we see the variations and there will always be variations. Mm. Um, and so, mm. you know, you can, you can go very technical into total quality. You know, Deming was a master of Deming, you know, Deming thought the whole, whole educational system, you know, being only rewarded for the right answer was part of the problem. Mm. Um, mm. But mm. no, no, something didn't work. Great. What didn't work? Let's take a look. Okay, so how can we now use this to refine our system? Yeah. So the cultural dimension of, you know, no one will ever say our our value is to hide mistakes and say it's someone else's fault. And, but then you look at it and go, well, it's kind of what's going on. Okay, we were, yeah, we're just, we're honest with ourselves. Everyone's hiding their mistakes. And so what's up here? So you go for a systems yeah. change and you tell a leader, you've got a little bit of a cultural issue. I'm like, well, I don't want to deal with that. Just, you know, how can these systems thinking tools work better? It's like, well, people don't tell the truth. We can't make them work better. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So one thing you shared earlier with me, I don't think it was on the recording, was this that, that you often or always start your systems thinking and system sensing teaching and workshops with sort of some real deep reflection and, and integration and Maybe like around purpose and maybe you could just say more about that. What's important with starting off deep, like sort of with this sort of slow approach, this depth approach, as opposed to diving in with uh, some of the yeah. amazing tools you have. Here. Well, yeah, there, there's a number of number of reasons. Uh, you know, one is, you know, there's it's lots of analogies, preparing the soil, being fully present, that kind of stuff. I mean, we live very highly pressurized lives, mm-hmm. you know, very complex systems. And, you know, all kinds of things are kind of taking up our headspace. I have a friend who's a neuroscientist that basically thinks that most people today in any kind of you know professional job are in amygdala overload and mm. their whole they don't really have much of their prefrontal lobe left to wow. actually learn something we get we get so habituated to reacting and reacting and mm. reacting and reacting mm. that there's mm. almost no space you know the, the, mm. the, the kind of the, the more you know um, traditional as your cup is full <laughs> can't add yeah. You want there's more, no, it's going to pour out. Like, you yeah. know, nothing's going in. Yeah. So it's and his point like, of view is that, like, that because we're so in that that neurologically activated state, that we're kind of fight or flight, that, like, just the, there's not yes. enough processing power left for the... There's not enough processing power. So, in a way, 
you know, his name is Srinivasan Pillay, and he's written a number of different books. Oh, uh, yeah. Really I had him I had him on the show. That's yeah, I great. love Srini. I was, yeah. Srini and I would do programs together. Oh, I, wow. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Oh, yeah. We would have a blast. Anyway, um, you know, so you know his work, and you know, it's basically, you know, that, uh, you know, he does reflective exercises. He, yeah. he does deep breathing. Yeah. You know, because we've known for for, for for millennia that if you breathe more deeply, your mind calms down. And when mm-hmm. your mind calms down, your emotions calm down. When your emotions mm-hmm. calm down, you're present. Right. You know, and you can begin to start to see things freshly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a wonderful um, analogy of the mind, which is, you know, a mind in that kind of state. The, the rule of the mind is everything else. Everything is the same as everything else, but not quite. <laughs> Meaning you see something, oh, I know what that is. It's this. It's like, no. You understand we immediately relate it to something in the past that we've already experienced. A whole set of definitions come into our mind and we miss what might be <clears throat> novel. And you can't talk your way into that. You can say, oh, yeah, that makes sense and you keep doing it. Versus you take some time. The other thing is not only does it settle you, it's you start to connect with other people because mm. we make all kinds of assessments of other mm. people versus just being there with other people, actually being able to listen to them. Mm. And maybe even more importantly, listen to a different point of view than our own. Mm. Mm. And rather mm. than, you know, we have this other little model, which is politeness, difference. You know, mostly people go are very polite, then they start to get to know each other, open up, then they find a difference, then they go back to politeness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's I can't do. Mm-hmm. Versus inquiring into the thinking and reasoning of the difference. That's which I think in our modern world these days, my God, is it lacking? Uh, yeah, you it's can, rough you out there. You can front. make up your own mind, but like, and what's interesting is whether you agree or not, the experience of being listened to even if you still have a difference, connects you much more yeah. closely. Yeah. You, you start to have, you start to connect. You start to, you know, other things become possible that weren't possible before. Mm. So with systems thinking, I mean, fundamentally system, you know, like uh, archetypes, what archetypes are like shifting the burden limits to success. You know, there are these tools where you take, you know, fundamentally a, 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 a pattern of behavior and you map it. Um, but the best use of that is to map it with other people mm. in the system mm. to say, so it's going to work like this. You know, when we, you know, re- reduce overtime, I saw this as the consequence. What did you see? They build a picture of it. You've heard, everyone has heard so much about the power of shared vision. Mm. You know, and mm. we know there's pseudo shared vision, like they told us this is the vision. So versus, you know, I know what my vision is as a human being. I know what I want to do here. I'm listening to you. All of a sudden, we, you know, there is the yeah. real thing. Yeah. What people don't talk about are causally uh, uh, represented pictures of current reality. Mm. Not just mm. now we share this vision. Do we share an understanding of why the current circumstances are the way they are? Mm. That's the real mm. benefit of mm. causal loop diagramming and some of these systems tools. Mm. And then we have both what we're looking for and how it's emerging. And it's like, hmm. mm. now we have the basis for a conversation for 
finding a leverage point, designing mm. an experiment for change. And mm. sometimes the leverage points are in here, not just out there. Yeah. So I'm hearing you describe kind of a one in the op- sort of the opening stages, just kind of like the power of really priming a group of people to settle their nervous system and to connect with each other. And, and that naturally, I'm already kind of hearing you say implicitly that that starts to naturally put people in a kind of, you know, Bob Galvin state of being of just like, they're going to be more open, more able to sense things, even if they're not thinking about it, they're, they're just there and present. And then from that, a lot, there's this ability to co-create vision like hey is this where we all want to go yeah but then also to co-create a vision of well why aren't we there yet yes and now we can now all clearly see oh it's this and this and maybe this here inside of us that is is actually standing directly in the way of the very thing we all say we want yes so another uh, additional analogy of that is i will often say to people you know uh, uh you know how many people think your system is broken you know dysfunctional every hand goes up and I'll say, that's not. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting now. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't get them, right? Yeah. So do you understand, you know, it's not broken. Step back, step back, step mm. back. How mm. is it working? Mm. How is it working? Mm. You know, and then you start to see technical elements. You start to see timing elements. You start to see cultural elements. Mm. And you start mm. to go, whoa. Like, you know, when you go into an organization that's happened recently and, you know, I, I, you need to help me. You know, my, my people are not really creative. They're not doing anything. You know, I don't know, they're wonderful people. And, uh, but, you know, I got a problem. And then, you, you know, you start to not just interview people, but actually attend meetings. And you, and you realize, oh, you, are, you breathe all the air in the room. You, there is no space. I know mm. you don't intend it. I know you really are excited. I know you really care about it. But let me point something out to you that, you know, there is a way in which you show up because you're the leader and because of, you know, your intensity that inadvertently displaces people's ability or willingness to actually put forth an idea mm. or a suggestion. Mm. So what's the structural, you know, intervention there? I said, so the next two meetings, I'll be there with you. This is up to you. I don't want you to say anything. <laughs> the structural intervention is, please stop That's talking. That's a structural intervention. Yeah. You, want, you yeah. understand. And so yeah. I said, what's going to happen yeah. is first, they're not going to say anything. Then they're going to say a little something and look at you to see if they're going to get demolished. Then when, <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen. It'll start to move, and that's exactly what happened. It's not. It, it's not that I have just tremendous powers of prediction. Mm. It's you start to see that you know this, the behavioral system play out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, or you see the. Um, I worked at Apollo Computer many years ago, and all of these companies were having such problems um, having uh, quarterly meeting their quarterly goals. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, production goals, sales goals, and they, you know, and then the last week before the end of the quarter, it was pandemonium. Uh, so Apollo, it was named Bill Paduska, I think. I took a systems thinking course, and he started having weekly goals. <laughs> and by the time the quarter came, it was handled. I mean, that was you. You, you see the the yeah. shift there. Yeah, you yeah. Know. The system is perfectly designed to produce pandemonium because we only have quarterly goals and no one's paying attention until a week before the goal. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Let's see if we have weekly goals because yes. that seems to be the time horizon we're working on. 
So like we had Srini on the call, he would say, yeah, to the, to the mind, the future is always the future. You know, it's, you know, mm. you, you can even get into, you know, kind of the neuroscience underpinnings. Mm. Mm. Um, but so that was both on one hand, that was a technical systemic intervention. And the other one was a little bit of a behavioral mm. uh, systemic intervention, mm. but it comes out of like, so what's going on here? You know? Yeah, And you can almost, it's very rarely people are up to no good. It's almost never that. It's not, people are not trying to show up and screw the system up. Although there's often <laughs> seems to be this, like that suspicion uh, can often be a product of these, these systems. But yeah, like uh, in most cases, that's, that's not the case. In, in most cases, it's not yeah. the case. And, and then it gets entrenched. So it's really quite interesting, you know, and then, uh, you know, it's, um, it can be really, uh, it, 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 it's also, it, it's not just individual, it's collective because most of our systems are, you know, combinations of human beings, mm. uh, you know, and we enact the system every day, you know, the system's thinking, and then there's, what are you enacting? And we often each have our roles. Uh, family therapy was another kind of model we used, especially with David Cantor, which is, you know, the old family yeah. before, before systems family therapy. You know, if uh, Johnny was acting out the, the son, you'd focus your intervention on Johnny. Then these, um, you know, systems therapists showed up. They stood back and they said, yeah, I hope it's Johnny when the mother comes home, you know, with alcohol in her breath, screams at the father. This happens, that happens. No wonder Johnny's not doing his homework. <laughs> yeah. It, you see what I mean? It play, it, it, you know, it plays out. So we started using some of those models that were developed by uh, uh, structural uh, family therapists. Mm. And mm. we found that many of the dynamics really were very similar. Mm. Um, and mm. it's a system. Mm. Mm. Everybody plays their role. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really... It's, it's, For some reason, the, uh, and I, this, this is Cantor, right? Is the drama triangle, is that one of his, his tools? Uh, I, I, the drama triangle is, yeah, I, I don't think it's David's, but that that's really around, you know. David had something called the, the four, F-O-U-R, four-player model, move a post, follow, by, stand, affect, power, meaning. I mean, he the, the, he was able to begin to use a, a very kind of, uh, a particular kind of language to be almost like with archetypes, you could draw the structure mm. uh, and begin mm. to see it mm. and begin to have the people in it see it mm. uh, and david did something that uh, a number of the really brilliant uh, theoreticians and practitioners i've met all say kind of this have a different way into the same thing david called it structural trap a uh, maturano umberto maturano called it emotional contradiction um uh Heifetz, you know calls it an adaptive challenge and what it is is it's it's a conflicting reward system if i mm. do what's mm. right my, you know, my people will like me, but my boss will fire me if mm. I do it. My, so you find yourself in an emotional contradiction or a structural trap. Mm. It becomes if I do what a, my boss wants, I won't get fired, but the people will be mad at me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's our inability to distinguish and manage structural traps that cause very often aberrant behavior. 
So mm. part of also a system's change is where are the traps in the system? Where are the emotional contradictions in the system? Where are the conflicting reward systems? Mm. And, you know, and then, okay, so now we see them. And it's not like you ever get rid of the contradiction, but can you, can you really think your way through it? Can you mm. make a choice inside those pressures Versus you don't think anymore. It's all amygdala. You're just like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go here. Mm, mm. You see what I mean? It's no longer an intelligent capacity to recognize. Yeah, you're just kind of ping-ponging around these different. So I think the reason that I sense the reason that drama triangle floated into my awareness is, is because you've used the word archetype a couple of times. And so I'm not familiar with the, with the four model that you described, but, but maybe, maybe it would be helpful to just kind of unpack the sort of, behavioral or systemic archetypes so that people can get who are listening might get a, a, a begin to get a felt sense of what some of these aberrant behaviors or sort of the things that tend to the patterns that tend to emerge in systems that have these structural traps yeah well we can we can maybe a little bit i mean you know the um you know you're familiar you know each each of us is familiar with different things so let me try. Yeah, let's uh, let's play with it. I, there's so, something about the archetypes that's like pinging me right now that I want to. Dig so into. there's um, um, so uh, you know, so Cantor, right? Cantor, uh, and, and as I said, very often, you know, there there may be unique expressions of the same concept. It's so you know, if you have a different way of doing this, it's just fine. There is no one way or right way. Totally. Because they're starting to, because again, underneath the best models is helping you to see the self-evidence so you don't need the model. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where I think yeah. models belong. Yeah. They're simply lenses so that you can actually see it yourself. So for David, you know, let's say in languages, he said, Oh, people speak three languages. That's all. It doesn't matter what country they're from, it doesn't matter, they speak three languages. Affect, power, and meaning. Mm. Power is the language of getting things done. You know, just do it. Just get it done. What's next? Meaning is why? <laughs> why are we doing this? And affect is compassion, taking care of people. Now, the best organizations and institutions have all three. You know, we have meaning, we have a purpose. Power, we get things done. And affect is we take care of people. You yeah. know, people are, are accounted for. They're not... Yeah. We take care of each other and whoever it is we're serving or reaching. Yes, we're not just chewing them up and spitting them out and getting the next, you know, fresh, you know, crop. And so you listen to a conversation and the conversation won't be going well. And you say, ah, he's speaking power and she's speaking meaning. (laughs) They're just going like this. And so a meaning person seeing this says, no, no, no. Okay, finally, I understand. You want to be sure we're going to produce this result by such and such a date in this way. I'm with you. I agree with you. But unless we have a meeting with the people in the organization and explain to them why and how this is going to help, it, it won't be effective. You, 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 you see, you, yeah. you, in order to, to do that, you need to be able to speak the other person's language mm. first. Then mm. you can take them over to your side. Mm. It's like, you don't know anything, you know, you know how it goes. Either it's mm. expressed that way or not expressed that way. Mm. So just that simple bit of uh, being able to distinguish what language is being spoken mm. Mm. 
and to be able to then speak in the other person's language and in a big energy company the technologists were inventing all this remarkable stuff and the business units were just saying no 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 and they were like you know wow. why and the business people were speaking power and the technologists only spoke meaning mm. <laughs> They were enamored mm. by their own thing, and they don't. So, this, how is this going to work? Was how is this going to improve my mm. you know, my bottom line? How is this going to improve the quality of the products mm. so I don't get so many returns? So, fundamentally, the 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 intervention was teaching the technologists to speak power. Mm. That's really helpful. I'm noticing. I don't know if you have an insight on this, or or maybe this is in Cantor's framework, but I'm noticing that I'm if I had to put myself in one category, I'm probably a meaning person, which makes sense since I have a podcast. that's all about understanding things. Um, and, and then an affect person, like I'm feeling myself pulled in that direction. And then the power for me, I relate to it as like emerging from the meaning and the affect. And I can imagine someone who is not interested in meaning or affect being like, that's so like, what a waste of time. Let's get to power. But, but yeah, I just wonder like, uh, like there's a way in which the way you just described is that all three sort of exist maybe on a flat or, or they're equal or sort of just perspective dependent. But I, I'm noticing part of me, it's like, no, but meaning's more important than power, Robert. And I wonder like, if you to could you. just help, help me play with that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. To you. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you know, you need to know why you're doing something in order to do it needs to connect with your values. Yeah. For some other people, I need to know people are not going to be harmed and they're not going to be treated well. For yes. other people, it's like, I, I just want to get things done. That's the kind of person I am. I'm a doer. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, yeah. you know, I mean, of, of course, at a higher octave of maturity, we're aware of ourselves and we're aware of others. And we're also aware that it, it's only with the three that something works, mm. really works well. Mm. But, um, mm. um, you know, what, what I do is, I, you know, being an interventionist or, or a, a consultant, is I try to understand the core language of what's going on, especially the leaders. Mm. And, you know, and mm. very often, you know, if, if there's a constraint or a stuckness, uh, like all they, they're just so habituated to power that, you know, they, they really don't even listen to, you know, other approaches or other dimensions, which will help them. The job is, is to how do you open up kind mm. of that mm. person's mm. listening to say, I don't care whether you like meaning or not. You're going to get much better results if you actually, people actually know what they're doing, especially with your more creative people. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. then you prove it by, okay, so let's do an experiment. Mm. You know, let's try, um, you know, we, anyway, we can get into that for a while, but it, yeah. it's, it's unbelievably effective. Right. Now, some people are one way at work and one way at home. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and they think it's two different they're two different people mm -hmm. you know and so you you often can find in most people the uh the understanding of that dimension it's just they haven't yet made it relevant right right you know, uh, yeah it's super useful to have to, to how mm. it actually works mm. or to see through to you know no no how do we use all three of these dimensions mm. because you know that's what really mm. motivates people. When we look out, when I look out over, that's that really appreciate that. And, and this sort of capacity, what I heard you say earlier is that organizations that embrace all three 
perspectives, languages, and integrate yeah. them effectively are the organizations that thrive. So yes. that really makes sense to me. Yeah. Too much power, you lose meaning, you lose connection, there's destruction, yeah. just too much affect, it's all process, nothing's getting done. Mm-hmm. Too much meaning, we're all in our heads and you know we're not connecting with people and nothing's getting right. done, right? Like there's all of these traps, I guess. Right. But I am noticing that when I look out, as I attempt to do sense-making of what's happening in our world today, it feels to me like the, that the obsession with power or the, or maybe the structural trap of power, like growth scale, bottom line at all costs forever and ever. Amen is a particular kind of trap that is producing some really, really outsized impacts on the collective system. So that we have these, sort of organizational actors who, who as a result of their place in our larger human made system create like massive impacts on, on civilization and, and in the environment. And yeah, I just for, wonder like how, short, how you're relating results. to that right now. Yeah. For short-term results. Yeah. You know, they, that, yeah, that actually, uh, yeah, well, I think there's a number of these this is a very big question. I mean, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I am not anti-technology. On the other hand, I think, just as I said, when people come into a, a program, it's like, close the doors, take some deep breaths, let's show mm-hmm. up here. What do you need to say to be present? I know a lot's going on. It'll be there when we open the door again. You know, let's just begin to settle in, you know, um, and and find a way through to actually be be present now. I think it's harder and harder and harder. You know, we have our phones 24-7. We have, we're bombarded with all kinds of, I mean, I can't even go on the internet anymore without 10 advertisements. Yeah. I mean, it's just astounding. Yeah. It's taking more and more and more personal discipline to be able to do it. And our reward systems, you know, um, tend to be also somewhat really superficial. We're losing track of, you know, without this planet, we're not going to be alive. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. this is we're breathing air. Air is based upon the environment. You know, it, um, we now have microplastics in our blood because we, you know, yeah. are you know, um, we're rushing through so many things that we we're not able to deal with the unintended consequences, and so we just start to ignore them. Mm. 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 Uh, and you know, that's flight, right? Yeah. And it's like I just can't. I just leave me alone. It's like I you know, until there's a crisis, mm-hmm. and then when there's a crisis, we have to stop because our survival is threatened. We make a short-term change. As it improves, we go back to where we were before. So mm-hmm. part of mm-hmm. what we work with in also, and we didn't get into you know kind of some of these this this particular set of principles, but uh, motivation is is either aspiration or desperation. Desperation Mm. is very short-term. It's very destructive. It works in the short-term, but doesn't work in the long-term, whereas aspiration is bringing something into existence, not making something go away. So, you know, an important element is, uh, fundamentally, we we motivated by desperation, or is there real aspiration? The Mm. whole notion of vision is to try to get there. Mm. The conversational part is, you don't see reality. You only see what you see through your biology. You know, you don't know what the other person is seeing. And some of us know that and know if someone has a different view in order to create a picture, a more dimensional picture of reality, we need to do it. Mm. And instead of that, we just judge the other person. We have a demand for obedience to our point of view. It's all about power. And so there are are certain, you know, shifts 
involved mm-hmm. in this approach too. Understanding aspiration and dispiration. Understanding, um, uh, um, I see what I see, I don't see what is. Mm-hmm. And Trini and any neuroscientist can take you down that, that. And then in systems, it's your system is not broken, it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, systems have um, multi-temporal dimensions to them. Uh, and, and so there's a, a number of shifts of mind and behavior in each of those areas. Mm. Why would and that's affect power meaning, right? Yeah. Systems thinking is power. Mm. Conversation is affect. Mm. Vision is uh, um, um, meaning. Yeah. You know, uh, Aristotle's model of leadership is ethos, pathos, logos, mm. which is you know um, yes. ethical uh, kind of idea or where you're going. Uh, pathos is connection, and logos is. Uh, that Confucius is virtue, compassion, action. It's, it's all, these are the three fundamental yeah. human things. Start seeing the pattern <laughs> everywhere. It's really cool. Yeah. Hmm. I'm feeling uh, there's sort of a question and then maybe also an invitation and, and uh, you can choose which yeah. you want to start with. The, the question is something like, as you, and I really ask this like with no pressure expectation that you're going to have the answer, right? But rather as you, as you sit with as best as you're able, uh, the kind of meta mega sort of global system that we're all a part of, as you kind of sense into that field, uh, curious what's, what's emerging for you around how we might help or invite more people to pay attention to some of the things that they're either ignoring or that they're scared of, or that are simply invisible because they've never learned how to pay attention to them. And so that's the question. And then the invitation is that at some point before we wrap, I want, I want to hear you read at least one more piece of poetry. And I wonder okay. if the poetry might help, help you sense into that first, or if we want to play with that last question before we do the poetry, but those are the kind of two last items that are coming up for me. Um. There may be two pieces of poetry. I'm just thinking of what they might be. But um, so I think there are. Um, I think there are. Um, there are, are, are a number of. You know, maybe a small number of um, dimensions here for the first part of your question about you know you know ultimately you know. What is potentially a, a leverage point for change to yeah. increase the capability for deep awareness and sensing yes. of ourselves and of our systems? Yeah. And so I, I think there are a few, and it's it's not, not of course not an answer, but the principles are, uh, uh, at least for me, is can you hold another person who may be doing something destructive? or and may not even know they are, or difficult, can you hold them with compassion? Mm-hmm. What, what is the, uh, what's, what's the word I used to the word? Um, it's not what you say in, your, in a conversation with someone, especially in a conversation around difference, or even around anything. What's your disposition going into the conversation? Are you already thinking they're wrong? Are you already thinking they need to be corrected? Are you already, you know, if you are, guess what? Mm. They can pick it up. 
You know, mm-hmm. this is this is we talked about gut feeling earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, or are mm-hmm. you going in with you know compassion, curiosity, and understanding of how they might have, in order to survive, how mm-hmm. they might have gotten to that place, and it was functional for a while, and then there's an kind of overwhelm or difficulty in being able to do it. One mm-hmm. of my first jobs uh, was I, I used to write software. And, um, uh, you know, back in the late 70s, I mean, you know, this is before you could buy package that, figure out how an organization worked and I would write software. And then I would, okay, I have an accounting system for you and I have a warehouse management system for you. Everybody was scared out of their mind. <laughs> the computer, oh my God. You know, I realized <laughs> they were afraid. Mm. I don't just fire them and get more people. It's like, no, 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 no. it's okay. We're going to get through this one together. Mm. You know, it's it really, I know it's intimidating. It's really not. It's like a refrigerator. I mean, whatever it was, you calmed people down and mm. they were willing. And then all of a sudden they were, no, okay, I can, I can do it. So I realized, you know, wow, that's when I got interested in how human beings learn. Mm-hmm. That's when I realized, you know, people have tremendous aptitude. Whether or not they have, you know, the list of degrees or anything, people yeah. have a tremendous aptitude, and how you approach it as, a, you know, like ah, this person's never going to learn. I need someone else to, you know, we we have to get this done tomorrow. <laughs> and you know, you just, you know, people become expendable and disposable. So I think it's it's that's one thing. I think you know, and I know uh, Peter Sangi has been doing a lot of work in this area lately, and I, I understand that I've done a little bit of it, which is in education. Early childhood education, our educational mm. systems, you know, how we condition people. Uh, you know, I mean, something called compassionate systems where they literally in schools and more and more schools are using contemplative practice. They're calling it times, you know, they're really starting to integrate that dimension into the educational process. Mm. They're mm. integrating systems thinking like, oh, no, the system's not like, you know. What's an unintended consequence? What's a fix that backfires? Here, you know, and you know, ten-year-olds are are starting to have it. Mm. Uh, so mm. I think there's something along along those lines. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's others. Like nothing's occurring to me, but it, it's it's kind of who are you being? You know? Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, this this is really powerful. Thing. But it is, it is, it's, you know, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Otherwise, your words will have no power. Mm. Mm. I think that that insight in particular, the way in which, like, and this is, we could have a whole other conversation about, like, what is it about our systems of rhetoric and dialogue that produce these outcomes of polarization, right? But like, you know, the way in which the louder you yell and the less you're willing to listen, the more likely it is that the other person's going to oppose you, right? Like you literally, you literally can't, you can't connect with someone unless you're willing to really encounter them as a someone, as opposed to simply an opponent or, or yes. uh, ignorant or whatever other judgment you might come in. And that, that actually that comes through our bodies and our energy as much yes. as it does our language that feels really powerful and then yes. to realize that is, that's something we have to learn how to do and that that kids learning this stuff might might pay off like might we might not see the impact of that for another 10 15 20 years but yeah that strikes me as a really important piece of the puzzle of like we, if we if we care about the future we have to think 
about the people who are going to be living in that future after we're gone. Yes. Yeah. And then there's, you know, like, you know, this project I'm doing in Staten Island, you know, with community groups and uh, the Board of Education is including students in the process, yeah. especially the ones that really show an interest in it. Mm. Um, there's a, another element of the kind of the education work is rather than, this is an interesting distinction, rather than helping, you know, children, students learn how to cope with the world as it is. It's teaching them how to create the world they want to live in. Mm. It's mm. a very different orientation. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, and yes, man, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But if you know, if 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 you're reacting out of fear and unwilling, you know, to really begin to do something different, the game is all. You're right. The game's over. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, Robert, this has been such such a pleasure. I, like I said, I you know when you were describing your work with Serini, but honestly, just in in general, to sort of, I feel like I got to be a little bit of a fly on the wall of the work that you do, which I think is so important for for organizations and for frankly for like our human species, the capacity to think and feel more deeply and systemically is really powerful to me. And uh, I wonder if you've had a chance to touch into the piece of closing poetry in the okay, spirit yeah. of two two pieces. Um, Great. Uh, one is about kind of about uh, well, you'll see what the two pieces are. I'll yeah, yeah. One. Um, <clears throat> okay. When I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. Hmm. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change the town. And, and, and as an older man, I tried, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realize the only thing I can change is myself. And suddenly I realize that if long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family and I could have made an impact on our town. And their impact could have changed the nation. And I could indeed have changed the world. That's a 19th century rabbi named Rabbi Israel Salanter. But I mean, this is a, you know, kind of a fairly universal, but it's said just well. It's just like. So perfect. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And then here's another one uh, that I like about challenge. It needs to open. It takes other. Oh, uh, okay, there we go. All right, hold one second. It's coming up. There it is. Okay, you are young, so you know everything. You leap into the boat and begin rowing. But listen, listen to me. Without fanfare, without embarrassment, without any doubt, I talk directly to your soul. Listen to me. Lift the oars from the water. Let your arms rest and your heart, and your heart's little intelligence. And listen to me. There is life without love. It is not worth a bent penny or a scuffed shoe. It's not worth the body of a dog, of a dead dog, nine days unburied. When you hear a mile away, and still out of sight, the churn of the water as it begins to swirl and roll, fretting around the sharp rocks, when you hear the unmistakable pounding, when you feel the mist on your mouth and sense ahead the embattlement, the long falls plunging and 
streaming, then row, row for your life toward it. Mm. Mm. So good. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Who is that? Who is that last one? That's Mary Oliver. It's called the West Wing. Of course it is. Yeah. She's something special. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. One more, one more. One more. I remember this one. This is Rumi. Yeah. You, know, you must know Rumi. Oh, yeah. So you may have heard this one. I don't know. It's one of my favorite. There's so many Rumi poems and Kabir. Anyway, Rumi, it's a, I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting answers, knocking on a door. It opens. I have been knocking from the inside. <laughs> Oh yeah, Rumi. Boy. That was a that was a one two three punch right there. Woo. Yeah, wow. Thank you, thank you to the rabbi. Tell me his name again. Uh, uh, Salanter. Let me find it. Rabbi Salanter, Mary Oliver, yeah. Jaladan Rumi, and and thanks to you today, Robert, for entering into this space and playing and dancing with me. I I feel more open to. The, these ways of thinking and being that you've described so beautifully. So thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. All right. Thanks everyone for listening in. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirquois and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, Please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.